Bob Baxley has led teams at some very design-forward companies, including Apple and Pinterest. Along the way, he's learned a lot about the mechanics of leading great design teams to launch products successfully. We chat with Bob about design reviews, who should be involved, and what's the best fidelity of work to show to make them productive. We also speak about getting alignment with developer partners and building key partnerships with executives. We learned a lot about maintaining a connected workflow from Bob and hope you will too. Thanks for listening. We also wanted to share a fun, easy way to get more from the Design Better podcast at home. The Design Better podcast is available as an Amazon Alexa skill for Echo Dot and more. Simply say, Alexa, play the Design Better podcast on TuneIn and you'll hear our latest episodes. Thanks for listening. Now let's start the show. We're big fans of Gusto, who make it easy to run payroll, set up healthcare and other benefits for your business. They've made setting up the HR infrastructure for Design Better a breeze. Gusto is also one of the best design SaaS tools out there. Design Better listeners get three months free once they run their first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash design better. We'll tell you more about them later in the show. Bob Baxley knows a thing or two about design leadership and how to build well-connected teams. See, Bob spent over eight years at Apple serving in leadership roles for their retail and e-commerce teams. And as director of design led teams working on a broad range of applications, including the Apple Online Store, maybe you've heard of it, as well as the transactional areas of iPhoto and GarageBand. Most recently, Bob served as the head of product design at Pinterest, where he built, led, and managed a multifaceted design team responsible for both the consumer and business-facing elements of Pinterest. Bob is now an advisor, a mentor, a speaker, and... Personally, I think he's just a mensch, as well as the author of Making the Web Work. Bob Baxley, welcome to the Design Better Podcast. Aaron, thanks for having me. Eli, great to see you. How are you guys doing today? So Bob is someone that we have talked with quite a bit over the years and knows the Valley and the Bay Area and the design industry like few others out there. And Bob, you've been involved in the Design Leadership Forum facilitating conversations. And for those of our listeners that don't know about the Design Leadership Forum, you can find out more at designleadership.com. But it's a group of design leaders that get together at special events to have moderated conversations. Bob has, has moderated many of those conversations discussing the challenges that most design leaders face. And it's a, a great way to learn faster together is the idea. Bob, at the many dinners where you've directed the conversation, can you talk about maybe a theme or two that, that seems to be recurring that you hear a lot of design leaders struggling with and what's happening inside of design teams? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, Aaron, thanks for including me in some of those dinners. They've been so much fun to be a part of and, and to connect with the community. You know, I think the thing that I've taken away from the dinners the most is that we're kind of inventing the profession as we go along. And so you see a lot of those design leaders show up and there's not a standard playbook. And I think people kind of want there to be, they expect there to be, and, they, and I think they maybe get a little frustrated that they're having to figure things out, but it really speaks to how new the profession is. And we don't have the multiple decades of figuring out processes and whatnot that people in engineering might have, for example. I mean, they've been writing code at scale for a long time now. And I still think that we've only really been designing software since the advent of the App Store, which people kind of forget, but the App Store released around the same time Obama was sworn in for his first term. And I'm sure there's many listeners who remember that vividly and probably think it wasn't all that long ago. So we've really only been involved in serious software design for maybe a decade. And what I've seen mostly in the forums is just the sense of community is really strong. And to have these leaders come in and be able to hear other people talk about similar problems and similar challenges, I think it helps them feel that they're not alone and they're not isolated. When the reality is in their companies, they may be the only people really seriously thinking about these issues. Um, if you go into engineering, there might be multiple engineering managers or directors trying to work through the problems. But oftentimes, the design teams, the, the people leading those teams are really at the avant-garde of building those organizations. So in terms of themes, there's a lot of just practical things about working with engineering, working with PM, hiring strategies. There's a lot of stuff about uh, interacting with executive staff and how to try to get CEO buy-in and things like that. It's a lot of sort of navigating uh, you know, I hate to use the word politics, but it's sort of navigating the politics and power structure companies and finding a way to, you know, we've, we talked for many years about getting a seat at the table. 
and having a seat at the table and actually being part of the conversation is sort of a different thing. And so I think a lot of these leaders feel that like, yeah, there's a seat at the table, but what does it mean for me to occupy that now? And how do I need to interact with the other people around the table? So, I mean, it, it, from, from dinner to dinner, I tend to try to focus on some of the higher level philosophical ideas, sort of what, what we're doing as a profession, how we're bringing more designers in. Do we love the products we're working on? My experience has been that sometimes people like to talk about that stuff, but there's also a lot of interesting and probably the most passionate conversation around some just pragmatic, practical things. Again, things like hiring strategies, you know, how to do employee reviews, things like that, which again, I think just speaks to how new we are in all this and how we're having to figure it out collectively. Let's talk a little bit about that engineering designer relationship, because that one is, it's so critical. Not that it, you know, the relationship between product and design is, is not as critical, but it seems to be a place where there's often friction or if there's something that's going to be lost in translation, it's usually right there. In, in your experience, personally, in your career, and maybe also what you're hearing from design leaders in the industry, what are they doing? What are the strategies that they're employing to have tighter alignment with engineering, to have clearer communication lines so they can ship better products? I'm not sure if I have a great answer to that because I don't know so much from talking to other design leaders where they sit on that spectrum. For me personally, I always found it to be beneficial to realize that the engineers, like the designers, wanted to build the best product possible. Like I went into every meeting and every review thinking that everyone in the room wanted to create something that they would be excited and proud to show their parents. And so I think when designers get in this mindset that the engineers are maybe trying to cut corners or aren't totally bought into the design, they're maybe not realizing the full scope of things that the engineers are having to deal with. So as a designer, what I often pushed myself and my team was to just make sure our specifications were as clear as possible. Personally, I was a huge advocate of producing written specs. I don't see that being as popular in companies that are trying to iterate design really quickly. When we were designing something like the online store at Apple, you know, we're taking, you know, tons and tons of credit card transactions, billions of dollars changing hands, people expected products to be delivered on time, correctly, things like that. There's not a lot of experimentation in something like the checkout system for a major e-commerce system. There might be some marketing experimentation, but you're not really messing around to see what happens with some of the checkout flows. So in that project in particular, we wrote a really extensive spec that detailed every last variation and we tried to get the engineers to help us understand every corner case they were having to deal with. And we made sure all that stuff was thoroughly documented. I tended to use kind of engineering language. So I wanted to express things to engineers and if-then statements, you know, and make sure that they understood the conditionals. And I think that they ended up respecting that mode of communication and that we were trying to preemptively answer all their questions. Um, one of the other dynamics I saw at design-driven companies like Apple and Pinterest is that the engineers came in feeling like they had to do whatever the designers said. Uh, I'm mm. sure that's pretty unimaginable in some environments, but at Apple in particular, like it was sort of it was very design-led. Same thing at Pinterest, and so I think the engineers had a hard time knowing how to push back and ask questions. And oftentimes there was a lot of ambiguity in the design that the designer just hadn't thought through, or they had unintentionally left that ambiguity. And so it was always delicate to find that moment when we really wanted engineering to start driving the process and asking us all the questions and telling us everything we had missed. So Bob, when you were at Pinterest, since the focus of the product wasn't maybe quite as transactional, was there more room for experimentation there? Or did you pull in a lot of the same strategies that you had used at Apple? Yeah, no, Pinterest was uh, a world away from Apple in terms of process. So Pinterest is, you know, operates in the way that I understand companies like Facebook and Google operate, it's very metrics-driven, a lot of experimentation, particularly in the new user flows, which is an area where I think it makes a lot of sense. At any given time, and I haven't been at Pinterest for a few years, so I, I can't speak to what's happening at the company now, but in the time I was there, you know, there could be 90 different experiments going on at any given time. And so there was a, definitely a culture of, well, let's see, you know, let's, let's stand up a small bucket test and see what happens. So there was a lot less opportunity for design oversight because you couldn't really get a handle on all those different experiments as a design, as someone who felt like maybe they were supposed to be the creative director of some of that. And then I think also it sort of confused a lot of the conversation in the company because nobody ever really knew exactly what any given user was seeing. So as I, I thought it ended up being a little confusing because when I logged into the site, I might somehow have gotten into some test and I would be seeing something that was a little bit different. 
So, you know, it's this funny thing. I noticed this at Apple too, but at a different scale, you know, because designers are always working on the next release and sometimes the release after that. You start thinking in your head, that's what's actually going on. And we did stuff at Apple that didn't release for 12 or 18 months. And because we weren't going to the online store and actually looking at the real user experience every day, we started thinking our designs had already shipped. And I think that's one of the risks of the whole experimentation thing. You just lose track of what customers and users are actually seeing. And there's a lot of people in the company that are having to live that day to day, whether they're on the phone or the executives or engineers having to fix bugs with things that's happening in production. So I think that's been a risk and something I suspect happens a lot of companies. Designers just get really out of touch with the production reality. So that's, it's interesting that there's some companies like Automatic, I know, where you have to actually spend time doing customer service. So you have that, you know, touch on the product. Are there opportunities you see around that for, for designers to remain connected? Yes. So again, when I was working on the online store, you know, part of the online store operation was not merely the website, but also the call center. And so, um, and I'm sure this exists in most companies, there's a mechanism where you can sit at corporate and dial into an 800 number and eavesdrop on calls. And that was always just revelatory to get on a call and listen to somebody try to explain to someone, some some novice, you know, how to configure a MacBook Air and have to like really listen to the questions that these people had. Um, so just listening to the calls was phenomenal. And that happens in any company. I mean, you know, all these companies have customer service organizations that I'm sure you can listen into calls. Actually going and sitting with customer service people was also amazing. Again, the Apple call center wasn't too far from here. There was one in Austin, another one out in Sacramento. And so we visited those multiple times. And being able to see the dynamic of what the agents are dealing with as, as you're listening into the call is really, really educational. You know, it's, it's kind of real-time user feedback with actual users actually using production. You know, it's just incredibly eye-opening. And then for me, the experience that was surprising and, you know, not to oversell it, but like literally changed my life was working in Apple Retail and being able to go into the stores and talk to the specialists in the stores and see transactions in the real world, in real time, with software systems that we had worked on. And that experience of designing those systems, and I, I was working on some things in the store that customers would see, but when I was in retail, I was mostly working on things that the employees themselves saw. So inventory tracking systems, point of sale systems, real-time uh, sales reporting systems, things like that. So that gave you a sense of what happens inside a store to create that experience. And all the sort of back of house and all the stagecraft and theatrics that makes those experiences so great for customers. And I say it kind of changed my life because since then, I have not been able to look at a restaurant the same way. You know, Disneyland is a completely different experience to me. You know, if, if, if you've seen the movie uh, Field of Dreams, you know, there's that scene towards the end where uh, Timothy Buzzfield walks out on the ballpark and he's suddenly able to see all the ballplayers, right? And he's kind of like, where'd all these ballplayers come from? You know, and it, was, it was sort of one of those moments when you're like, oh my goodness, like I go into these situations all the time and there's all this stagecraft happening to create this dinner for me. So it, it gave me a real sense of the craft of pulling that stuff off and it created a lot more empathy for me with the employees. You know, sort of the frustration of my family when I travel these days, it's not uncommon for me to start talking to the, the agents, the gate agents, you know, and ask them if I can look around the counter and see the systems they're working on, you know, because there's a crazy amount of extrapolation that those people have to do. They're, they're working with these old command line systems and they're trying to hold a real-time conversation with you. And it's, it's a, that's, a, that's a tough job, you know. And, and one of the things we talked about at Apple, and I think Apple started to do this, you see it in other retailers that have gone to handheld point-of-sale systems, is for a long time there was this idea of there was an employee-facing experience and a customer-facing experience. And one of the things I pushed really hard at Apple was that we really have to stop talking that way. Employees are people too. And if you can do stuff to make the systems easier for them, you can lower their cognitive load, which frees up mental resources for them to focus on the customer experience. And it's much easier to have a, a whatever, a 20-person engineering design team making a really stellar point-of-sale system and offloading all that stress and, and confusion and tension from a, you know, what is it, about 80,000 person sales force, you know? But companies often don't think that way. They don't really have enough design resources to invest in that kind of back of house stuff. And so there's a, a culture, I think, in a lot of companies where the employees can just make up that cognitive, that cognitive gap. Bob, when you visited these call centers or you visited retail stores, was that something that you did with your design team or would you go with product and engineering partners as well? Was it a cross-functional activity? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we did both. Some of the stuff was a design team going out and like looking at the Palo Alto store. I mean, again, one great thing about Apple retail is you can always come up with an excuse to travel. 
Like, oh, we just have to go to the Fifth Avenue store because it's the only 24-hour store. So it's the only place we could possibly do this visit. I guess we'll be in New York for the week. <laughs> you know, and, and living here in the Bay Area, this is one of the highest concentrations of Apple stores. So we could go visit lots of different store environments. If we, if we as designers just kind of casually wanted to go see something on an afternoon, there was other times when we did more structured projects in New York where we did a really interesting role-playing exercise with a bunch of the, the geniuses from, the, from uh, the New York area. And we'd ask them, you know, we'd set up different software scenarios and we'd have like kind of cartoons of what a customer interaction would be like and try to get their input on whether or not that would make sense. We did a lot of, it, again, in the context of Apple Retail, we did a lot of storyboarding that was absent the technology. So we didn't show them screenshots so much. We talked a lot about the interaction that we wanted to have and then we were going to try to figure out the technology after that. And I think we sort of got into the same place that Airbnb sort of famously got into with their Snow White project, where they have the storyboards of what they want the host and guest experience to be. So to your question, yeah, there was times when we went out just really informally, which I think any designer can do on any day. Again, you're picking up the phone and listening to a call center, just going out on the street and talking to people, or you can do it more structured. And, and certainly if you can take engineering and product, that's always, it's, it's incredibly eye-opening for engineering, I think. I remember vividly there was a usability test I did way early in my career when I was at Claris working on Mac Project. And I had been haggling with an engineer for weeks, if not months, about some particular feature related to printing or something. And we had like two users come in, which was way too few, but we just had a couple of people come in. And then we had this engineer sit in the room with us while we did this usability test. And, you know, the user struggled with the thing. And to my earlier point that, you know, engineers want to create great work too. He saw this person struggle. It was a huge moment of insight for him. He literally got up out of the room, went back to his cube and started changing the code. So, you know, that really drove home for me the power of just connecting back to people that are actually using the software. A point I should have made a second ago, too, is that when I look at the younger generation of designers, uh, the thing that I see missing from them the most is they just haven't done their 80, 120, 200 hours of sitting and watching actual users use actual software. It's really rare. I, I tried to do it a little bit at Pinterest and Apple, but didn't get a lot of traction. I think it's invaluable for designers to sit and watch users use other software, um, mm. just use commercial software. So I remember one time at Apple where Apple didn't do any usability tests, so it wasn't something we could kind of make a big fuss over. But we ended up organizing a small test with a you know a bunch of engineers came. And we didn't have users go through our software. We just had them go through checkout on Amazon and Williams-Sonoma. I can't remember all the sites, eBay, stuff like that. We just we just watched them go through a bunch of different sites. And it was really eye-opening because stuff that you didn't think really mattered that much, like delivery date, turns out to be enormously important to people. But you don't get that insight until you actually see them. And then I used to joke, you know, like we all need to spend more time with just mere mortals because it gives you an appreciation for how complex most software is. And we all just take it for granted because, for one, we're all kind of tech nerds and we live it and we love it because it's our, our livelihood. But we're also just kind of all adept to it because we're just swimming in it morning, noon, and night. And you take people who you know live a life where technology isn't at the center of things, and this stuff is really confusing. Just watching people try to manage the, the new credit cards with the chip instead of the swipe. I mean, you see people all the time. It's, we're kind of getting through it now, but there was a solid year in there when you'd be sitting at Safeway or something, and you just watch people struggling with the little stupid VeriSign point-of-sale system. And you just have to scale that across the, the dozens, hundreds, thousands of interactions that people are having in a given day or a given week. Personally, I think that's a lot of what leads to, to this sort of heightened sense of anxiety and stress and loss of control. You know, and obviously there's a lot of reasons for that right now. But I think it must be incredibly difficult emotionally to go through your day and not be tech savvy. I think you would feel victimized all the time by these systems that it's somehow gotten in your head that these systems are smarter than you, you know, and there's no attribution for this stuff. So you don't know who to blame. You know, I, I'm lucky because I know the people that design a lot of the software I use. So when I hit a rough spot with it, you know, I'm the kind of the crazy guy in my basement yelling at people by name because I know who <laughs> did it. You know, um, And it gives me a certain bit of control because I realize there's a human being behind it. But if I'm not a tech guy, you know, if I'm my, my in-laws and I'm 72 years old now, and I just got an iPhone and I can't figure something out, or God forbid, I can't figure out the new feature on the ATM or the check-in kiosk at the airport or the parking meter they just installed on my street. Like, I, it just must be so frustrating and so anxiety-producing. 
again, I think those of us that swim in tech all the time, we have totally lost sight that we've created a very rarefied world for those of us who are members of that club. Kind of joke like we've turned the whole world into Disneyland and the mobile phone now is this virtual fast pass, you know, and you can see it at TSA pre, you can see it when you check into a hotel, you can see it when you get a rental car, you can see it when you're picking up an Uber instead of a taxi. Like there's all these systems that, that those of us in the know understand how to navigate. But if you don't know how to navigate that stuff, like you're not getting the fast pass, you know, and you got to wait in a long line and you see all these other people cutting by you and you don't know about how that system works or even that it exists. And that is just going to create a lot of resentment. It reminds me of a uh, SNL skit came out about a year or so ago with uh, the Amazon Alexa Silver. I don't know if you guys had watched that, but, but where the premise was that Amazon came out with a device for older seniors who are having trouble with Alexa. They were kind of shouting her name, Odessa, Alyssa, Alyssa. <laughs> but it kind of brings up a point though, with, I wonder, Bob, if you, what do you think about these kind of more emergent interfaces like voice and maybe artificial intelligence enabled interfaces, machine learning enabled. Natural will that, user interface. Yeah, natural user interface. Will, will those types of things help or will you just get more kind of entrenched, those of us who are adept at it and the, leave the rest of the folks behind? Um, well, I'll just be honest right up front and say, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I think that we, one thing I'd point out is you and I both, I think, made this mistake of equating older people with technology, non-proficient people. And I have teenagers as well, and they have plenty of their friends that are not technology efficient. So I think we've gotten to a place where it's not a generational challenge. It's, you know, it's how much time people want to spend swimming in these systems, you know, and if you're kind of a nerdy a nerdy guy, a nerdy girl growing up and play a lot of video games, then yeah, this virtual world probably seems pretty natural. But if you're not, you know, it's still pretty hard. You know, there's plenty of kids in high school that are having trouble with Google Docs and figuring out Google Classroom and all the systems they have to navigate. I mean, I don't know how old your kids are, but you know, all the systems they have to navigate in high school, much less college, is crazy. So so you were asking about uh, machine learning and AI-enabled interfaces, and I I can't say I have any kind of an opinion because I, I haven't seen one, so I don't really know how to think about that part of it. The voice-enabled thing's interesting because there's so little affordance to what those systems can do, and it's going to be a massive cultural shift for people to realize all the things that they could ask a computer to do for them. So I, the people that I see using Siri and Alexa and stuff like that, it still seems kind of like a novelty to me. Um, I, I mean, I know there's a lot of excitement around voice activated systems kind of taken over. And I know there's some stuff going on in offices now where they're trying to be prepared for people being able to talk to their computer. And I saw some of the stuff at Adobe Max where they were talking about voice commands for um, some of their products. I personally, like I haven't really made the adjustment to using voice and I can't say exactly why. It just still seems kind of unnatural to me. And I don't really know what I can ask. So there's some novelty cases like, you know, asking Siri to dial a phone number, you know, or like look up a sports score is kind of fun. I just got an Apple Watch, so being able to do a, a message with an audio transcription is kind of fun. doesn't really replace a lot of the other stuff I'm doing, though. I think it's a valid point about the discoverability of an interface like voice, and it's the same for a command line, that you have to know what you can do to gain power with the system. Uh, what's interesting to me, though, is that I hear this conversation at parties all the time of like, hey, did you know you can ask Alexa to tell you any word in Japanese? Or did you know that you can say, hey Siri, show me the flights overhead right now and it will show you every airplane over your head? This is a recurring theme that I hear people you know, sharing these, these novel approaches and they're not necessarily tech people that, that are talking about this. So it feels like it's wonderful in the truest sense of the word that it's creating wonderment for people. These superpowers they didn't know they had through a natural interaction versus uh, a UI. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, to hear you talk about it that way, yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting cultural phenomenon. What you just described sounded like a bunch of video game people describing Easter eggs. Um, you know, did, did you know if you do Mario this way, you can get four extra coins or something? Or, you know, or like Pokemon Go, all the kind of insider tips and tricks. You know, for these systems we're building, that people's lives are really, the quality of their lives can be really dependent on their knowledge of these systems. I don't know if I'm totally comfortable with, you know, people having to remember all that stuff or point it out to each other at parties. I don't know. I guess I have mixed feelings about it. Some of the stuff, like when I look at Slack, which is obviously enormously successful product, tons of people use it and love it. 
you know, it is like a command line interface. And I feel like we're back to NASA, you know, relaying nouns and verb commands to the Apollo astronauts. You know, it's just, it is so much insider baseball. And I just, you know, I do worry that there's a whole lot of people that get left behind by that. Like a whole lot of people get left behind. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. If you sit all day at work, like most of us do, and you've never tried a desk that can transition between sitting and standing, let me tell you, it's a complete game changer. I often struggle with hip pain that's caused by prolonged sitting, and a standing desk has helped me switch up my posture during the workday so I can avoid that pain and just feel better. Standing while I work, it helps me get those creative juices flowing, and it helps me focus and stay productive. I'm way more alert, which is helpful, especially after lunch. Each standing desk from Uplift Desk is built with solid materials. They have so many different beautiful woods to choose from. They're built to last, and you can customize it to match your space. Plus, you get free shipping, free returns, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Just go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5, and you'll get 5% off your order. That's upliftdesk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Check them out. Support for Design Better comes from Gusto, who make running a small business easy. Get three months free at gusto.com slash designbetter once you run your first payroll. I've run a few small businesses in my career, and each time I've set one up, the prospect of figuring out payroll and HR, it just freaks me out. But then I found Gusto. It's an incredible tool that Eli and I use to run our own payroll here at Design Better. Gusto made setup easy, and they even helped us sort out tax registrations with multiple states. Gusto is a brilliant tool. It's well-designed, and it's incredibly usable. Design Better listeners can get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash design better. Can't recommend it enough. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit crashplan.com slash design better to sign up for a free trial and take advantage of one of their limited time buy one, get one offers. Let's do a little thought experiment together. Imagine for a moment that you no longer have access to your computer. Say you spill coffee on it, it has an unrecoverable crash, or someone steals it. How much would a total loss of your data disrupt your work and your life? It would be significant, right? This is why you should be protecting all your work with an unlimited backup and recovery solution like CrashPlan. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. I dropped my laptop on marble stairs just about an hour before stepping on stage at a big conference in Europe, and I lost my presentation. I didn't have a backup. CrashPlan would have saved me in that moment. Businesses of all sizes can benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities. Buy as many user licenses as you need, and then you can easily manage them all under one account. Just go to CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter to sign up for a free trial. Try it out and see what you think. Take advantage of their limited-time buy-one-get-one offer for Design Better listeners. That's CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter. Back up better with CrashPlan. So let's talk a little bit about the design review process. I know it's something that you're particularly passionate about because it really, you saw different types of design reviews in design teams from your time at Yahoo and Apple and Pinterest and various other places in between as well. This season of the podcast, we're exploring the connected workflow of how these different aspects or different teams, different groups, factions who work together to create very complicated systems, trying to make them not so complicated, make software that's very powerful and easy to use and meet some goals for customers and meets goals for business how they interact together and communicate. And it feels like the design review is the center of that. How does a design review power the interactions in a software design team? Yeah, so I had two major experiences with design reviews. One would be during my time at Apple and the other at Pinterest. You know, the way I talk about the Apple reviews at this point is the company was at a different point in its evolution. 
because I was there as the iPhone shipped and, and sort of the ramp up to like the iPhone 5 or so. So the company was in a very focused, hyper growth environment. And Steve Jobs was still there. And a lot of what happened inside Apple was getting work up to Steve to get his approval. And the company was sort of organized that way. And the companies, you know, and, and this is true today, uh, you know, the company's strategic competitive advantage is design. That is what Apple lives and dies by as a company. And there's not many companies like that. So I think, you know, one of the things that maybe I didn't calculate on properly was trying to take that Apple design review ethos and put it into environment like Pinterest, where, you know, Pinterest design is really important. I don't know if the company lives and dies by design so much as they live by content and new users and growth, and they're trying to define a whole new environment. So there's a lot of experimentation that goes into that. So I think trying to use the rigidity of the design review process we had at Apple in the environment of Pinterest maybe wasn't such a great idea. So what we used at Apple, I don't know how it applies to other environments. It was incredible for the six years that I did it when I was on the online store. And the routine there was, you know, was, everything was structured around a week. And so we came in on Monday, we had the team meeting, talked about the projects that were in flight, what people were going to deliver that week. Um, on Tuesday, we had a two-hour team review, just designers, but the entire design team. So everybody had to show what they were working on. Everybody got to comment. Everybody took notes. Then you had the rest of Tuesday and Wednesday to improve your work. And then we came back, we did the same thing on Thursday. So another two hours, the whole team, everybody got to comment. And then on Friday afternoon, from 4 to 6 p.m. on Friday, we sat with our VP and her uh, executive team, and we reviewed the work from the week for another two hours. So it's a really intense process. Like People had to show their work every 48 hours, basically. I came to describe the process as a little bit like Saturday Night Live, where Monday we sort of threw around some ideas as to what we might think we'd have for the week. On Tuesday, we sort of had like the initial run through the sketches. On Thursday, we had sort of a dress rehearsal. And on Friday was the show with the executive team. And, you know, it actually is as intense as it was. It sort of lowered the pressure because every Friday there was a new show. And so if we bombed on Friday or part of one of the sketches didn't go well, it's OK because we were back next week. What I saw in a lot of other companies is designers tend to only go to the executives when they have something good and ready. And by that time, they're so invested in that date. And you can't get the date really quickly, right? So they they don't oftentimes you see people not want to schedule exec reviews until they're really ready. And by then, it's not always hard to get the meeting, but the work is already so baked that the executive doesn't have a lot of room to influence it without providing a big setback to the team. Um, so for us, staying in touch with our executive decision makers you know, every week for two hours kept us really al closely aligned with them and gave us really important visibility and feedback into all the different parts of the business, the engineering contingencies, things like that. The team that did that, you know, the store at that point was doing billions and billions of dollars in revenue. It was the, I think at the time, it was the second largest online store on the web, second only to Amazon. And the people we had designing the store was a team of eight. So there were eight designers working on the store. One of them was me, who didn't actually produce anything. And one of them was a producer who just kind of helped manage all the schedules and stuff. So you actually had six designers actually sitting at their desk, drawing the pictures, producing an online store that had 12 and a half thousand storefronts in 30 some odd countries just for the web presence. And then you had the mobile app and then you had other projects we worked on that, and other systems that never got to see the light of day. I mean, the volume of work we turned out was unbelievable. And that team, like we still get together for lunch every quarter or so. I mean, it's like we all went to war together or something and, and everybody's kind of scattered to the winds and worked in a huge variety of companies now. And they all talk glowingly about that time and how intense it was, but how incredibly productive it was. Again, I haven't seen that play out to other companies and I don't know how well it would work at other companies. One of the things I thought was really important was everybody seeing all the work because you just got so much different feedback from different people that were and weren't involved in the project. I think that was huge. And then just the rhythm that you were expected to show your work all the time. And so you kind of couldn't really sit at your desk and stew and get all worried about it. And then I told the team over and over, it's like the goal of the review is to come to consensus around ideas that we want to see executed. So that by the time you go back to your desk, your main job is to actually draw the pictures so that we can then look at them and evaluate them as a team. That, you know, if you ever found yourself sitting at your desk by yourself with your headphones on stressing because you felt like you had to figure it out on your own, something was really broken. So I think for the team, it was useful because it helped them, it, you know, kind of isolated uh, what they needed to do in any given moment. And again, they didn't feel like they had to carry the weight of the world on their shoulders and sit and solve these big, massive problems by themselves. 
I use this football metaphor where it's like, you know, nobody wants a Hail Mary pass. We all just need a bunch of three yard runs up the middle. So like, like, don't try to impress me. Like, let's all stay together and march down the field in sync. You know, Steve had a great line in an interview, I think with Wired or something where they, the interviewer saying something like, God, your job must be so much fun just to sit here and have these designers bring in all this great work and you just get to kind of see it and comment on it. And he's like, no, it doesn't work that way at all. Like if anybody ever brings in anything that surprises me, something's something's wrong in the process, right? Like we need to be really hand in hand or, you know, lockstep week after week. And so I actually found it to be an incredibly intense process, but again, super productive, uh, very predictable and highly efficient. Again, if you think of the scale of that team and how much we were able to produce, I've never seen anything remotely like it. And, and of course, that wasn't just our team. That was, at the time, uh, that was every team at Apple. Uh, they all worked that way. Like the number of people working on the, the OS or working on iMovie or iLife, it stunned you how small those teams were. I don't know if that's still the case. Uh, I haven't been at Apple in many years, so it, it, uh, it might be different now. But you know, again, at that moment in time, it was incredible. Can you unpack what you said about that a job said, if you show me something and it's a surprise and we have a problem, What's at risk if designers present to executives something that is a surprise? You know, I always assumed that designers weren't working with complete information, that there was always more stuff about the business and engineering contingencies, and particularly at Apple, because there was no way that as an individual employee, we knew everything that was happening in the company. So because of the secrecy in the company, you had to walk into every meeting with an executive thinking that they were calculating on way more variables than you would ever be aware so I guess I never walked into those moments trying to, you know, surprise. I mean, and surprise is like, oh, I come up with something completely out of left field that they didn't expect. You know, it's not that we didn't bring in solutions that they smiled about, you know, or said were clever or, or were a different way of thinking about it. But I think we never came in and tried to solve a problem that we hadn't been in sync with the week before, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of the design reviews at the executive level I mean, obviously, we talked about the design deliverables as a way to define the problem we were trying to solve. And so we walked out of every Friday meeting with a better idea of the problem we were trying to solve in terms of all the constraints and the deadlines and all the you know legal contingencies and commerce contingencies. Like every week, we had a better understanding of that. And so the solution we brought in the next time was ever tighter to solving that problem. So I think that the executives might have been impressed or maybe a little surprised, amused maybe, with the way that we solved the problem. But they were never, like, we never tried to go in and redefine the problem. I might compare it a little bit to, like, chess. I've been playing a lot of chess lately. The World Chess Championship's going on right now, so I'm having fun watching that. Um, you know, and, and in chess, the problem's pretty clear. I mean, you can look at the board, and everybody knows what, you know, that's what's happening. But great chess players, they make a move, and they find a solution that nobody else quite saw. You know, and that's when you kind of go, wow, look at that. That's amazing. But I wouldn't say that's a surprise. I mean, you see it with jazz musicians as well. You know, you'll see somebody doing a riff and, and some band member will look over and kind of give them a big smile like, wow, I didn't think about doing that. That's a really interesting solution to the problem that we'd set up as a band. And so when we were, again, when we were presenting to the, presenting design solutions to the executives, we might find clever solutions, but we were never trying to wholly redefine the problem. So Bob, you mentioned that this review process might not work at other companies just because of the way that Apple is structured and its history and it's the way that Steve Jobs ran it during the time that you were there. When you moved over to Pinterest, were you able to adapt the review process at all? Or how did you approach it differently when you were there? Yeah, so we tried a couple of different things. And again, I, I, I'm not quite sure where they've landed now. We did institute a weekly design review with the exec staff, which I think was really good. I, I don't believe they were doing that before I got there. Uh, that actually ended up going to twice a week. So the teams had a steady cadence in which to get to the executives. And we did do all team reviews. If I recall, we eventually broke down so that we had, uh, like the growth team would have their review and then the core product team would have their review and then the business tool team would have their review. And in those reviews, you would see the designers plus engineers plus PM all together making collective decisions. You know, the big difference in those reviews is there's no one with the moral authority to make a firm decision. So, um, you know, in some of the talks I give, I have this phrase I use called the path to yes. You know, what's what's the path to yes? Because all designers need to know what are the hoops I have to go through to get something approved. And at Apple, there was a really clear path to yes, and it went right up the chain of command. And at the time, again, I assume this is still the case of the company, like the people above you were all phenomenally talented. Like if our VP made a decision, I wouldn't sit around questioning whether that was the right decision. I mean, she was incredible 
incredibly gifted at making these design decisions. And as you worked up the food chain with whoever, Eddie or Phil or Tim or certainly Steve, like the, the decision-making capability these guys was unbelievable. And we went into review after review at the executive level where they would look at something and point out something we had missed. We'd been staring at it for four months and they'd look at it for you know, a minute and point something we had missed. Um, you know, it's just, so, so there was sort of a moral authority to make decisions that stick, that doesn't exist in a lot of companies. The other thing I used to say about the, the path to yes, so I use this metaphor of the path to yes should look like a mountain. You know, it could look like a really dangerous, treacherous mountain where you could fall, but at least with a mountain, you can see the summit and the designers know, oh, I have to go through this set of things to get my work approved. In a lot of companies, I think the path to yes looks more like cave diving, you know, spelunking, where you go in the cave and you're sort of feeling your way around, and you can suddenly go through a little hole that opens up a whole another cavern, and you didn't realize you actually had to go involve, you know, legal representatives from from Germany because they have this thing called the Works Council over there. Like you know, you don't know how many other groups you could stumble into that suddenly think they have a say in it. And when I use this metaphor in my talk, I also like to point out that whenever we see photographs of people cave diving, it always looks really spectacular because they've lit up the cave so they can take the picture, you know, and it looks amazing. But then I'm kind of quick to point out, you know, the cave only looked that way for about 125th of a second. Most <laughs> of the time, it's pitch dark, you know, and I think that's the reality. And, and, you know, I worked at Yahoo a long time ago, and that company had a very confusing leadership cycle, leadership structure, and it was definitely cave diving, man. Like, you had no idea how to get stuff approved, who you had to talk to, and it created so much stress and anxiety and inefficiency for the team. I mean, it made people nuts in a couple of cases, like almost literally. So, you know, I used to joke, there's nothing worse than taking a bunch of smart, talented people with a lot of ambition, put them in a situation and then give them no mechanism for making a collective decision. They just kind of, they start clawing each other's eyes out. So, you know, I don't know how many companies like, you know, if you go talk to a CEO or even talk to a design leader and you just put the question to them, you know, what's the path to yes for one of your designers? I don't think many of them could answer. You know, and at least at Apple, I used to tell my team all the time because they, you know, they talk about wanting to work on bigger strategic things. And I'd always say, well, the thing about doing big strategic work is you have to have big strategic ideas. So what I can assure you is if you have an idea over the weekend and we can work on it a little bit this week, I can get it in front of a VP on Friday and we can get it evaluated. So I want you to feel like there's a path to yes if you have something that needs to go down that trail. And I think that's much more empowering for people than, you know, oh, I came up with an idea and I have I guess I have to go shop it to these six people and maybe somebody will champion it, but I don't really know who. They just get into this whole political thing of trying to sell the design. It pulls you more into the personalities and the politics than the quality of the ideas themselves. I think a lot of companies that we've spoken with, the cadence, that level of access to executives is harder to come by. You know, it's not a, a weekly interaction with an executive. Some, some situations that is. And one way we've heard design leaders trying to solve that, Laura Martini comes to mind. She's a Googler on the analytics team. She always talked about bringing the right people into her design review process early on. And there's some vulnerability in that too, that her team wasn't presenting perfect, finalized designs. They were presenting early ideas, stuff that was rough, sometimes sketches, also, Jeff Tehan over at Facebook, I've heard him say basically the same type of thing, that VPs and executives at Facebook, they actually love seeing sketches. And oh, yeah. it's the most enjoyable part of the week is to be able to look at these sketches, these early ideas, because it invites participation. So I wonder if you could talk about that and your experience, both in your personal career, but then also your observations of lots of other companies and, and design leaders you've spoken with. What What is... Um, how do people bring the right people in at the right time? Yeah, so at the beginning of projects, like if I think about the Apple Store app for a second, like we had a partner that was on the Apple retail side and then we had an engineering lead. And this was pretty early on. I guess we would have started working on this around the time the iPhone 3GS was out and the target was for the app to come out with the iPhone 4. And so app development at, at Apple was just sort of ramping up and there was one young engineer who was really excited about doing the app. So we had Scotty involved early on and Corey over from retail a handful of designers from the online store side. And then, you know, we got a lot of buy-in both from Ron Johnson, who at the time ran Apple Retail, and Jennifer Bailey, who was running Apple Online Store at the time. Yeah, I mean, just an interesting story. You talk about sketches and stuff and trying to bring the right people. We knew that we had to have executive buy-in, that we had to get those two VPs and their the SVP and VP and their their teams engaged. 
And so the decision to make the, the Apple Store app uh, was literally Jennifer looking at me one Friday after design review and saying, you have to start designing an app now. You know, I can't be sitting here in six months and tell Steve we don't have an app. Like, go design it now. And that was kind of all the input there was. <laughs> um, and so that weekend, I went and started looking through a bunch of things on the App Store, which I hadn't paid a lot of attention to until then. And one of the insights I had was that most of the apps had five items down in the tray and that those items tended to be nouns. And they kind of dictated the functionality and sort of the scope of the app. And so I felt that if we could get some agreement on what those five objects would be, that that would provide the basis for the design and, and give us the executive buy-in we needed at the very beginning. So instead of trying to go in with sketches or anything like that, we just brainstormed about what those five objects could be. You know, clearly one of them was going to be cart. You know, one of them was probably going to be stores. One of them was going to be, you know, the, whatever the catalog we were going to call it. Maybe one was going to be featured. stuff. I mean, there was only so many nouns that would work. And we got all the interested parties into a room. There's probably 20 people in the room. And I just stuck big pieces of paper up on a whiteboard with magnets. And we just sat there. And over the course of like 15, 20 minutes, we just tried out different words, put them in a different order. And then we all kind of looked at it and kind of said, yeah, okay, that's it. And like, yeah, okay, that was it. <laughs> you know? And that was it for like the next six or seven years. And you know, right at the very beginning, the VPs felt they had a lot of opportunity to move the design around and say what they wanted in the app and what they wanted the priorities to be. So they had really strong input right at the beginning before there was any work committed, you know, before any final comps had been done, before any designers got attached to any ideas. I think this notion of trying to get the right people in the room at the beginning, I used to use this metaphor that it was like planting a redwood garden, you know, that there was ultimate flexibility in where the trees were going to grow right at the very beginning. But if you let it go too long, things got really difficult to move around. Um, so I loved what you were saying about the woman at Google and, and sketches and stuff. Like that was something I noticed and I tried to push at Pinterest and Apple as well. Like everybody put Photoshop down, just back away from your computer for a minute and let's just sketch some stuff out. You know, we'd spend a lot of time doing whiteboard sketching as a team or just having people sit and draw stuff. Like, oh, we're trying to come up with a new feature for price uh, filtering or something on Pinterest. Like, let's just draw 10 pictures. Like, just sit and sketch out 10 ideas. And then we'll weed them down. And, and that actually came from something I saw when I was working at a graphic design studio way early in my career. And we had a new job come in for a logo. And the head of the studio brought in, like, the four designers. And they said, okay, everybody just sketch some ideas. And they, they sketched for like maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And between the four of them, they came up with, I don't know, like 50, 60 ideas. And then they just, you know, started looking through them and you could throw a bunch of them away really quickly, you know, but after like no time at all, you were down to like two or three, maybe four really promising ideas. And it was like, okay, take those and flesh those out and let's see what happens. And it really, you know, it really drove home for me the, the, that famous saying, you know, if you want to have good ideas, the challenge is to get a lot of ideas, <laughs> you know? And I think when people start sitting down and they're immediately in a tool, whatever that tool might be, but they start producing comps, they start getting attached to that. And then there's like this emotional connection that builds up and it, it ends up being costly for them to switch from one thing to another. When at the beginning, it's like, what can you do that is as loose as possible that can convey the idea with a minimal amount of effort so that you don't feel bad about throwing the idea away? You know, I, I used to talk to my team about, you know, try to be really lazy and think about what's the minimum investment I can make to convey the idea accurately. And let's, you know, let's focus on that. And then once we get an idea that we love, then we'll go all in and we'll really invest in helping to nurture and grow that idea. And we'll, we'll bring the army to bring it to life. But at the beginning, let's keep things as loose as possible. You know, it's, sorry, to, to your question about who are the right people to bring in, you know, I used to use this phrase, kind of what I'd call creative technologists, that were a certain type of engineer that could see beyond the code you know, and see more how the mechanism and the medium of, of a computer and algorithmic-based decision-making could be brought to bear in a particular situation. And so I, in every company I've worked in, there was always a, a handful of people that you knew across the organization that I would refer to as creative technologists. You know, and they were the people that were noticing parking meters and ATM kiosks and came in on the weekend talking about video games. And, you know, they just had a different view of technology that were always really interesting to bring in at the beginning of projects. So Bob, one last question for you before we wrap up here. Are there any uh, books or podcasts right now that are that you're enjoying or are helping you out? On the design side, um, I listen to a ton of podcasts, so I, I got podcast recommendations for days. Thinking with the design lens, I think the book I'd recommend right now is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is an interesting inquiry about philosophy and the notion of quality and 
how we think about objective versus subjective reality. I'm highlighting massive portions of the book because I think they apply a lot. Well, he talk, he also, it's a lot about technology and the dehumanizing effect of technology mm -hmm. and how we get distanced from the people who are making all this stuff. Like the, the lack of attribution in technology, I think, is a, is a huge issue. I think it really dehumanizes the creators and it dehumanizes the consumption experience that the customers have. So Zen and the Artemis Slug Maintenance, uh, you know, really different kind of design book, but a really interesting, powerful read for me right now. And I urge people when you read it to take, it's one of those books that there's a lot there. And so I've gotten this habit of reading a book like that really slowly. So I'll read like one chapter a day and the chapters are only like four or five pages. So, you know, it's, it's going to take me like six months to read it. But when you spend that much time reading a book like that, it sits with you and becomes kind of part of your life in a really different way than just try to power through the 300 pages or whatever. So if you're going to read that one, take your time. On the podcast front, probably the most interesting one I've read that, that I've been listening to right now is called Everything's Alive. And Everything's Alive is an interview show where they're interviewing inanimate objects. So the first episode was an interview with a soda can. And uh, the and it's all, I think it's scripted or at least it's ad-libbed by really, really gifted comedians and actors. Um, and so the soda can's talking about where he lived in the grocery store and how he got taken out to kids' soccer games, but he was the soda can that never quite got consumed, you know, and kind of what that whole experience was. And how at the end, you know, that the host finally says, well, do you want me to, to open you and drink you? And the guy's like, well, yeah, that's why soda cans exist. So if you could do that, that'd be awesome. And so there's this whole thing about him being consumed at the end. There's an episode about an elevator. There's one with a lamppost. And I think it, you know, that one's been really powerful for me because one of the things I've tried to do this year is really try to imagine the world from other people's points of view. And so for part of the year, I was trying to, th I was really kind of obsessed with the idea that when I was talking to somebody, they were seeing me from their eyes, you know, and I was seeing them and we were, and even though we were in the same space, having the same conversation, we were having two wildly different experiences of it. And then somewhere in the year that actually got translated over to animals. And I started noticing my dog more and just like really wondering what's going on with my dog, you know, and thinking about what a completely different experience of the world that he has and the stuff that he's smelling and that he's, and that he's thinking. And like, you know, we live in the same house, you know, we know all the same people. We go on the same walk. We spend an enormous amount of time together and we are having wildly, wildly different experiences of life. Uh, there's a really interesting article about octopuses, you know, and, and how intelligent they are and how amazing they are and just trying to imagine the world from an octopus's point of view. So somehow this podcast came along and it was, it just kind of took that another level, you know? So now you sort of, you know, I don't know, you sit and you think about your car, you know, and your car sitting in the driveway, just kind of cold and wondering when you're going to come back and drive it around, you know? And like, what's it mean to be a car? Because all I really want to do is get out on the freeway and go fast. And God, I'm just stuck in traffic all the time and it's kind of a bummer and when are you going to fix that dent, man? I look bad. You know, could you help brother out? <laughs> so anyways, Everything's Alive is the podcast I'd go for. And uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Perfect. Those are great. I'd have to go back to Zen because I read it as an undergrad and need to spend some more time with it. So, Bob, um, thank you so, so much for being on. It's wonderful having you. And uh, we really appreciate you being here on the show. Thanks, guys. Appreciate the opportunity. Love the podcast. I'm glad you guys are out there doing this stuff. Thank you so much for the time.